Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Mike Florio. He is the creator and owner, along with NBC Sports, of ProFootballTalk.com, a leading NFL news organization. He hosts two daily shows on Peacock and SiriusXM, PFT Live and PFT PM. During the football season, he also appears weekly on the Sunday Night Football broadcast. His new book is Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, which is published by our friends at Public Affairs. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you. How's everything today? Everything's great. How are you doing today? Excellent, excellent. I always envy that uh, things are uh, a little warmer in North Carolina than West Virginia on any given day, pretty much every given day of the year. So uh, it's a beautiful <laughs> state and I love I love visiting. Passed through a couple of weeks ago on our way to Georgia and it's always uh, an enjoyable drive down and up 77. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I have a lot of relatives from West Virginia and um, it's 40 degrees here today, but you know, it'll be warmer tomorrow, I'm sure. Um, well, thank you, Mike, and welcome to the program. It's an honor to have you here. All right, Mike, let's talk about NFL football. Uh, you open your book by talking about a fan's misperception about what life as an NFL player is like. And you suggest that if someone wants to understand, then they ought to run into a wall or a garage door hard over and over again in front of 65,000 people if they're able. Uh, how, Mike, if a person were to do this, is this analogous to the life of an NFL player? Well, there is a huge physical demand on NFL players, and they spend nowadays the full year keeping their bodies in the best possible condition. I always admire the fact that these professional athletes will spend so much time honing their bodies to a point mm -hmm. of perfection and then enter this fray that necessarily will break those bodies down, either bit by bit over the course of a 17-game regular season or very quickly if they are hit the wrong way, step the wrong way, foot grabs on artificial turf and doesn't give, blows out a knee ligament, which we saw happen to Odell Beckham Jr. in Super Bowl 56 just a few weeks ago. So it really is amazing to think that they put so much effort into crafting their bodies to a point where they can then destroy their bodies willingly and knowingly and consciously. And one thing I've detected over the years, fans get desensitized to it just because of the next man up philosophy. Guy mm. gets injured, put in someone else. Guy mm. retires, find someone else. Guy just isn't deemed to be good enough anymore, find someone else. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to maybe help enhance sensitivity among the fans to what players really go with. And it is the equivalent. I remember hearing that years ago, that it's like running into a garage door over and over and over again. And it is. It is. The game's less physical. It's less brutal than it used to be. It's still very physical, but there's a reduced brutality. But still, it takes a toll short term. It takes a toll long term. And I just think folks need to understand that because so often, whenever there's an issue, especially between a player and a team, the fans knee-jerk line up behind the team. They line up behind the laundry, not behind the players. And I want people to understand that the players are the ones who are putting their, their livelihood, their health, and in some cases, although it's extreme and it hasn't happened in the NFL in a long time, their lives on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Lining up behind the team is not what's happening in Carolina right now, but we'll get back to that here in a little <laughs> bit. Um, 
and I am glad, you know, you mentioned Odell Beckham Jr. I am happy that he was able to score a touchdown before he went down in that game um, for him. Well, you mentioned early on in your book um, about fan anger towards players, specifically fans who uh, quote unquote own players in fantasy football. How has fantasy football changed football fandom for better or worse? Well, it warps fandom as a practical matter. And I remember first getting involved in fantasy football more than 30 years ago. Mm. All of a sudden, you're no longer focused on the one team that you really like, the teams that compete with the team you really like. And Mm. it's a very simple, linear process. Now it's very complicated because that team that your favorite team is competing with may have a running back that happens to be on your fantasy team. So you have this weird divided loyalty. And I think over time, people learn how to compartmentalize, but it is tough. It changes the experience. But what it does from the NFL's perspective, which has been very profitable for the league, it broadens a person's range of interest. And there may be games that a fan otherwise would not have cared about. But now, wait a minute, the quarterback of this team that I otherwise don't care about is on my fantasy team or is on my opponent's fantasy team this week. So I have a greater interest in keeping an eye on that game and rooting for or against that player. So that has taken what was a very small universe for fans to focus on and spread it across potentially the entire league. So that's been very good from a fan standpoint, but it does further dehumanize players. It desensitizes fans to what the players go through. I remember it's been 10, 11 years ago, Jamal Charles playing for the Chiefs at the time, suffered a knee injury, torn ACL, collided with something on the sideline, maybe tripped over the chain for the first down mark. It was something strange like that. And NFL.com had an image of him on the cart and tried to tie it into fantasy football in some way. And they, they got a backlash for it. And you know that that's the danger. And and it's human nature for the people who play fantasy football to think about their interests. But, you know, being upset because a guy gets injured, not because he's injured and he's going to have to go through a long, grueling rehab and his career may never be the same, but because it's now screwed up my fantasy team and I have to find a replacement. That's one of the realities of fantasy football. And and that's one of the reasons why it's important to remember that that these guys who are playing are sons and brothers and nephews and uncles and fathers and cousins and friends and people. It's, it's easy to think mm-hmm. that they're robots or cyborgs. They're not, they're people. And again, that's part of what we try to do in Playmakers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Tom Brady, by many estimations, the greatest professional football player, perhaps even the best professional athlete of all time, was chosen with the 199th pick in the NFL draft. Bill Polian, uh, who we have hosted in our store before, uh, claims he knew Brady was a first round talent. Uh, Nonsense, I say, as a Panthers fan, especially uh, being (laughs) a team that he has worked for. But um, how did Brady slip to the 199th pick in the draft, Mike? And what does this tell us about how talent is evaluated for the NFL draft? I remember when Polian made the claim that he had a first round grade on Tom Brady. Mm -hmm. The response to that is, well, shame on you for not using a fifth round pick on him then or using any Mm -hmm. pick before pick number 199. If you've got that Mm -hmm. high of a grade, why aren't you drafting that player when you have the ability to do so? So I never really put much stock in that. And there are plenty of stories that you'll hear about teams that claim they had a higher grade on Brady than they did. But, you know, the reality is he was misscouted. He played well in the Orange Bowl in his final game for Michigan, won that game. But, 
during the pre-draft process, he just wasn't impressive. The photo of him, as I always say, looking like a middle-aged dad with a raging prostate who rolled out of bed at three in the morning to go to the bathroom, just that surly look on his face and that build that did not suggest pro athlete, but he didn't run well, he didn't do well, and teams that may have been interested in him lost interest. It shows you how imperfect the scouting process is. They obsess mm -hmm. over things that really don't matter at the end of the day. But the fact that a guy who becomes one of the great athletes of all time slipped that far in the draft is instructive that the draft process for all the money that's spent, all the time that's devoted, all the effort to objectify and quantify this line between the numbers and the figures and what a player is going to do, there's never a way to measure heart. There's never a way to measure motivation. And I frankly think one of the reasons Tom Brady became so great is because he had that experience where he plummeted to 199. That lights a fire for some guys. You know, I see this happen at the receiver position. When there's mm -hmm. a player who thinks he's going to be great, he's going to be a first-round pick, and he's not a first-round pick, like Michael Thomas of the Saints is the best example for me. He becomes obsessed. He becomes motivated. He becomes determined to prove everyone wrong, not just the first year of his career, but every year of his career. And I think for Brady, that indignity, which he still remembers all these years later, that indignity has helped fuel him to become who he is. Yeah, and I wonder if he's done the, uh, you know, the Draymond Green thing where he's memorized all of the names of the people who were drafted uh, before him. Um, but Mike, do you think Tom Brady is done? No, I think he's going to play this year. I think that when we look back at the events that, that kind of came out of nowhere, the talk mm. of Tom Brady retiring first emerged when his former teammate Rob Ninkovich was on ESPN and said, I won't be surprised if Tom Brady retires. What else does he have to accomplish? And, and they asked Byron Leftwich, the Buccaneers offensive coordinator, about that the next day, and he didn't give a definitive answer that started to breathe life into this idea that a guy who has said for years he's going to play through the age of 45 and who has said repeatedly in the past several months, at least before retirement became an issue, that he was going to play through 2022, all of a sudden he's walking away. When we look at his announcement, when you see that he has thanked everyone, almost everyone by name in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers organization, didn't mention the mm -hmm. Patriots, and that was a story for a few hours that day. I think the message was when you couple it with everything he said since then, starting six days later, when he said, never say never about returning, mm -hmm. I think he's retired from the Buccaneers, right? That's the message. And mm -hmm. at some point at the appropriate time, he's going to make a play to be released or traded by Tampa Bay. So he can play for someone else. And I think he wants to play for the San Francisco 49ers. He wanted to play for him two yeah. years ago. They said, no, mm -hmm. thank you. And now they get a chance to rectify their mistake. He gets a chance to play for the team he grew up rooting for and an opportunity to win Super Bowl number eight before he walks off into the sunset, unless he decides to try to get Super Bowl win number nine if everything goes well this year. Yeah, and he wanted to be drafted by the 49ers as well, as did Aaron Rodgers. And you have to wonder what the 49ers have going on lately that they've passed on so many um, Hall of Fame quarterbacks that want to play for them. Um, but Mike... Speaking of the draft, you say you don't like the draft because young men embarking upon their professional careers in any industry should have the right to choose where they will work, for whom they will work, and with whom they will work. And yes, I totally agree. Why, Mike, are professional sports leagues the only professional organizations where workers are not allowed to choose where they work? Why do they need to be drafted? 
Well, the, the, the most obvious reason why it happens is because even though these are all distinct businesses. Now, modern leagues like the MLS have structured themselves differently. So it's just one company. It's not mm -hmm. 32 different companies as in the NFL. And the reason that the 32 teams can get away with this is because their labor force is unionized and it's a multi-employer bargaining unit. So you can come up with these rules that restrict movement, that dictate how and where the career will begin. Because, And, and I mentioned that because I first had the idea that there's something wrong with the draft in 2011 during the lockout. And I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds, but the argument was made during the lockout of 2011 that if there isn't a union in place, the draft itself is a violation of the antitrust laws. And that's accurate because you've got 32 distinct businesses coming together to make common labor rules with no exemption to the antitrust laws that come from having a unionized workforce. And I started thinking then there is something wrong with this. Because, you know, I practiced law before I got into this business. And when I came out of law school, I had multiple options as to where I wanted to live, who I wanted to work for, what type of practice I wanted to work with, the kind of people I was going to work with. I got to choose. And in every other industry, other than professional sports, you get to choose. In mm -hmm. professional sports, there's this idea that we need to have competitive balance. So the way that we're going to achieve competitive balance is to give the worst teams among us dibs on the best players. It's that simple. Now, that reasoning can have some unintended consequences, such as when teams decide they're going to embrace being bad in the hopes of getting better players. And the Miami Dolphins are currently embroiled in a controversy that flows directly from that mindset being taken to the extreme, where you enter the season saying, let's just be as bad as we can be this year so we can get the best possible player next year. But that's why it exists. There's a, a, and I think it's a misguided concept that we should reward the worst among us with the best possible picks. There's a better way to do it that removes the temptation to tank. And that also makes it more fair for the players who are in a position to choose. And I, I pose this question. It just shows you how brainwashed players are as they enter the draft. Mm -hmm. Players get to choose which college they're going to go to. And I'll ask them from time to time at this time of year when we have access to them and interview them. Don't you wish you should be able to do the same thing now? And they, they, they're, not even, they're not even wired to consider the possibility. In their mind, this is how it works. It's an honor and a privilege to be part of it. Whoever drafts me, I'm happy to go play for them. I mean, even if it's a kid who grew up in South Florida, whose family is all in South Florida, who played high school and college football in South Florida. And if he gets drafted by the Seattle Seahawks and he's going 3,000 miles away to a place he's never been, he knows no one doesn't really like the team, doesn't really respect what he knows of the coaching staff, doesn't matter. You just have to accept it because you have no alternative. And these guys are so hardwired to accept that's the way it is. You rarely hear any pushback from them. Right. And how rare of an occurrence is it that a player is drafted and then forces themselves out of the situation? I'm thinking as a, a longtime former Charlotte Hornets season ticket holder of when they drafted Kobe Bryant and he refused uh, to play for anyone but New York or Los Angeles at the time. And then there was some revisionist history about that several years later. But um, how often does a player force themselves out of the team they were drafted for? Not often enough. There are two major examples in the past 40 years 
John Elway, who warned the Baltimore Colts in 1983 not to draft me. His leverage was, I'll go play baseball. They drafted him anyway, and he forced a trade to the Denver Broncos. And then in 2004, Eli Manning did not want to play for the then San Diego Chargers. His dad was the public pincushion for that unpopular message, because I think players are afraid to make that stand. They're afraid to be perceived as selfish. They're afraid to be perceived as going against this institution of the draft, which gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. But in 2004, Eli made it clear he didn't want to play for the Chargers. Now, the reasoning was that he didn't sense that the Chargers really wanted him. They weren't on the same page. The coach and the GM at the time hated each other. One of them Mm -hmm. wanted him. One of them didn't. And so he didn't want to be part of that. So he ends up forcing a trade. Phillip Rivers lands in. San Diego and Eli lands with the Giants, but it should happen more often, especially with the top prospects. A couple of years ago, Joe Burrow, this comes from someone very close to Burrow, and it's mentioned in the book, the idea that if Joe Burrow were from Athens, Georgia, and not Athens, Ohio, he would have refused to play for the Cincinnati Bengals. That is a very unpopular statement to make in the presence of a Bengals fan, but it's 100% true, and they should just be happy he was indeed from Ohio and willingly played for the Bengals. Uh, because he was at least thinking about doing something that more players should do when they have that leverage at the top of the draft. Say, I am not going to play for you. Don't draft me or draft me and trade me. Thank you, Mike. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Mike Florio. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Mike Florio, author of Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, which is published by our friends at Public Affairs. Mike, you write that the NFL has three types of teams, those with a franchise quarterback, those desperately looking for a franchise quarterback, and those with a quarterback who may or may not become a franchise quarterback. My question uh, for you um, from a bookstore in Raleigh, North Carolina, is which one of these are the Carolina Panthers? They are clearly a team that is desperately looking for a franchise quarterback and just treading water or trying to with the guys they have. We've seen Mm -hmm. them rip through over the past several years, Teddy Bridgewater, and they decided after one season, he's not the guy traded him to the Broncos, paid a lot of his salary last year to facilitate the trade, but they were ready to move on from Teddy Bridgewater, and he left with millions for one year in Carolina. Then last year, the move for Sam Darnold, picking up his fifth-year option. He's going to make $18.8 million this year, mm. and there's no indication that he's the guy for the Carolina Panthers. They haven't closed the door on bringing back Cam Newton. I think they desperately want Deshaun Watson, and I yeah. had reported last year during the season as the trade deadline approached that the Panthers were the one team 
that was willing to trade for Watson with pending criminal and civil legal issues unresolved. They were willing to do it, but he wouldn't waive his no trade clause to go to Carolina. He may need to revisit that now uh, because the options aren't as obvious as they were a year ago, and he's been out of it for a year. I don't know that he's going to want Carolina because of the status of Matt Rule. It feels like it's hot seat time for him. And mm -hmm. if things go haywire, then Deshaun Watson's going to have to worry about a new coach in 2023. But the Panthers mm -hmm. clearly, and this comes from David Tepper, they are clearly in the desperately seeking a franchise quarterback mode. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you so much um, for that answer. We will see what happens there. They may lose some fans if they bring in Deshaun Watson, but you never know. Um, Winning is the greatest deodorant. I I'm not making a comment on whether or not it would be right to bring him in. They will right. get criticized. There will be a PR problem. But if they win, yeah. if they win, yeah. and then look at that electric crowd they had at the MLS game, filled the right. stadium, excitement, enthusiasm, nothing like winning to have that yeah. kind of enthusiasm on a regular basis. Yeah, this is also the uh, area of the country that chased George Shin and the Charlotte Hornets out of town because he had an affair with a cheerleader. Um, and they were, you know, making the second round of the playoffs every year, et cetera. Um, but that was, you know, a couple of decades ago. Things have changed. We will see what happens. Um, Mike, you also write that the Steelers once passed on Dan Marino because he liked to party. Uh, is there any irony in the fact that many years after this, they embraced Ben Roethlisberger? What changed between Marino and Big Ben regarding the franchise's outlook on uh, partying and or idiocy? Well, and look, there, there were rampant rumors about Dan Marino. I don't know what was true and what wasn't, but it caused mm. him to slide. And that was stupid. Maybe mm. there was just a different attitude then about God. God forbid guys in their early 20s like to have a good time. And there were different attitudes about different substances then and now. And, and, and also, the other reason that the Steelers were concerned about Marino was they had Terry Bradshaw. And mm -hmm. they had no idea that Terry Bradshaw would have one game left in his career before he retired because of an elbow injury that never properly healed, or they would have benefited from Dan Marino. And they may have very well drafted Dan Marino, despite the, the stupid rumors that put Marino in position to be available to the Steelers. But you know, with Ben Roethlisberger, he really didn't have that reputation coming out of Miami of Ohio. And he had some issues early in his career. It culminated in a six-game suspension in 2010 that was reduced to four games after he was accused of sexual misconduct in Georgia. No charges were filed. He was still suspended. The Steelers thought about trading him. It got ugly locally. And it's amazing how he redeemed himself. But as I said a minute ago, winning cures all. They got mm -hmm. to the Super Bowl that year. It was forgotten by 2011, and he was celebrated when he played his last game at home on that memorable Monday night earlier this year against the Cleveland Browns. And it's, it's almost like the ugliness didn't even happen. So mm -hmm. I don't think, to answer your question, it, it just, I don't, think it, I don't think the rumors about Marino stopped the Steelers in 1983. It was more about, we still have Terry Bradshaw. And I, there weren't rumors about Ben Roethlisberger when he entered the league in 2004. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to talk about Aaron Rodgers now. And we do have a longtime listener uh, who wanted me to ask you if you felt any remorse for giving Steeler fans false hope that he would be traded there. Um, I'll let you decide if you want to answer that. But speaking of Aaron Rodgers, in your book, you write as if you thought he would be traded. Now we know he will not be traded. He just re-signed a historically rich contract with the Packers for a few more years. Uh, what's going on with this guy? Does he want to be a Packer? Does he want to be a Jeopardy host? And what of the way that 
history repeated itself in the transition from Brett Favre to Rodgers and the transition or lack of transition now, I guess, from Rodgers to Love. Uh, will Love be traded? Well, first of all, if Aaron Rodgers were part of this conversation right now, he would correct you. He has not signed anything yet. He was ah, quick to go to Twitter yes. on Tuesday and say he hasn't mm -hmm. signed. And also the reports of four years, $200 million are mm -hmm. inaccurate, which probably means it's four years, 200 point. Oh, three, two million dollars or something like that. It's mm -hmm. he loves to play word games and it makes no sense to me as to the the question mm -hmm. of the false hope. It's, it wasn't false hope. It was real hope. He was mm -hmm. choosing from a menu of four teams, the Steelers, the Broncos, the Titans and the Packers. And he ultimately chose to stay with the Green Bay Packers. Mm -hmm. But he was considering other options. His agent worked as the go between between Rogers, the Packers and the other teams to line up unofficially what the trade package would be, what the compensation package would be. So the Packers could always plausibly say, we have had no trade conversations about Aaron Rodgers. They didn't. They allowed Rodgers' agent to set everything up. It was ready mm -hmm. to go if he had chosen any of those other options. But at the end of the day, he reminds me of the kid, and I've been that kid, who climbs the ladder all the way to the high dive, walks out to the edge of the board, stands there, and doesn't jump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole past year has been set up toward Aaron Rodgers jumping and he didn't jump. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's his call. But at the end of the day, when you look at the other options and you look at how strong the AFC is right now at the quarterback position and how many good competitive teams there are, his best mm -hmm. play was to stay put. They have catered to him in Green Bay. They've given him what he wanted. They're going to pay him a huge amount of money once he actually signs the contract. But he's in a division where the Bears have a new coach and a new general manager. The Vikings have a new coach and a new general manager. The Lions are in year two of their latest effort to figure out what they're going to be. The mm. Packers can run that division. They can be the one seed again, and maybe this year. Third straight year is the one seed. Maybe this is the year they get back to the Super Bowl. So I think it made sense at the end of the day. And even though he didn't use his power to leave, he leveraged his power into a much better situation in Green Bay than he had. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, back to the draft for a moment. I'm curious about the Wonderlick test. You write that teams will pass on a player if the player scores too low, uh, which I suppose is understandable. But a player that scores too high also may be passed over because he might be smarter than the coaches. Um, is this real? Why is a smart player a threat? And what, Mike, is the Wonderlick test? Well, the Wonderlick test is a general intelligence test with 50 questions, 12 minutes to take the entire test. Some of the questions are very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them aren't. Many players who would show up at the scouting combine didn't even know that they'd be taking the Wonderlick test, weren't prepared for it, didn't care about it. That's the reason for one of the low scores. And then you have learning disabilities and other issues that can factor into it. And it's such a hard right turn from what they're there to do. They're there to be poked and prodded physically for any injuries that may or may not affect their careers. They're there to work out, show what they can do at the uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. Mm -hmm. And this Wonderlick thing for a lot of players is just an afterthought, if it's even on the radar screen. The NFL has stopped this year submitting the Wonderlick test at the combine, but teams can still do it if they want to. And, and the teams keep using it because it's an apples to apples data point. It goes back for decades. We've always had players take it. We, so we want to be able to compare this. And, and low scores aren't a red flag generally. 
for quarterbacks, they can be, but Dan Marino had a very low Wonderlick score just by way of example. Mm -hmm. But when it's too high, you, you, coaches want players who will submit, who will comply, who won't question. They want mm -hmm. robots, basically. And mm -hmm. if you have a guy who is smarter than the coach, who can get one step ahead of the coach, who can maybe see through however the coach is trying to manipulate the players to deal with a certain issue. And that guy starts talking to the players and convincing the players and making the other robots self-aware. That can be a problem. And there are some coaches that are intimidated by that. And so anytime the, the score, it's a one out of 50 score, anytime it starts creeping over 40, that's when you have to wonder, is there gonna be a coach out there who is sufficiently insecure about his own intellect that he doesn't want someone that smart in the locker room potentially undermining the messages coming from the coaching staff. And that's real. I've heard that time and again over the years. That is a real concern. And I think as John Madden once said, if you become a great NFL coach, you're, you're a genius when the reality is you're just a phys ed major who decided you'd like coaching football. And uh, mm -hmm. so plenty of the guys that end up in coaching really aren't geniuses. They become geniuses in football, but more broadly, mm -hmm they weren't the smartest guys in the room and they don't want to give up that title to a player who may try to outsmart them at every turn. Thank you, Mike. And um, as a side note, we have a lot of science fiction authors here in Raleigh, and I think you may have just given one of them a premise for their next novel. Um, my next question for you, Mike, is Roger Goodell a good commissioner? Well, you have to understand who he works for before mm -hmm. you answer that question. Mm -hmm. I remember back during the lockout of 2011, I was getting ready to interview Roger Goodell for my show PFT Live because at a time like that, the commissioner and owners and other people from the league's perspective were very available mm -hmm. to be interviewed because they had messages they wanted to send. And someone from the league office suggested to me before the interview that I may want to point out that the commissioner is the commissioner for every constituency of football, not just the owners. Mm -hmm. And that's a load of crap, frankly. Mm -hmm. He is hired by the owners. He is mm -hmm. compensated by the owners. Whether or not he remains, the commissioner is determined by the owners. He mm -hmm. represents the owners. He is the, as my friend Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston likes to say, the highest paid pincushion in the world because mm -hmm. he's the guy who stands there with a straight face, talking about unpopular positions, saying whatever needs to be said while the billionaires hide behind the curtain and don't have to take the criticism and the flack for unpopular policies or positions or whatever the case may be. So from the perspective of the people who hire the owner or the commissioner and pay the commissioner, he's doing mm -hmm. a great job. He's doing a great job. And if we understand that's what his job is, he's doing a great job. The problem is they sometimes or all the time want us to believe that his job is something other than what it is. His job is to be the henchman, the bad cop, and ultimately the safety blanket for the, the owners. So they don't have to be the guys who are being scrutinized and vilified by media and fans for the unpopular things the NFL does. So under that standard, He's doing a great job. Yeah, thank you for that answer. To me, as a fan, it seems like we are in an era of historically bad sports commissioners. Um, 
and I'm, you know, stepping away from Goodell, looking at Manfred and Major League Baseball, I'm not really sure how he got the job or if he even likes baseball. It doesn't seem like he does as far as I can tell, but um, it seems like we're heading for a second shortened baseball season in three years, which is uh, sad for a lot of folks. Goodell seems bad in different ways, um, equally bad to me nonetheless. Adam Silver seems like an okay guy. Um, but thank you, Mike. We've barely touched upon the surface of your book here. It's a wonderful book. If you're a sports fan like I am, or if you're interested in the business of sports, this is the book for you. It is compulsively readable. I love it. Um, Before we go, Mike, I want to come full circle back to Tom Brady. Make an argument for our listeners, um, if you're so inclined. Not for me, I've already read the argument. Uh, But for our listeners about why Johnny Unitas might be the greatest football player of all time over Tom Brady. Well, when we consider the things that John Unitas accomplished during his career, we have to consider Mm -hmm. how the game was played in those days. In the Mm -hmm. 50s, in the 60s, it was rough and tumble. It was nothing like it is today. You could hit the quarterback in ways that would get you suspended for weeks, if not months, if you did it today. The receivers could literally be mugged all the way down the field until the ball was in the air. It wasn't the rule that you could, you could hit them one time in a five-yard window. You, it was fair game until the ball was released. And the idea that he went 47 straight games with a touchdown pass, a record that stood for decades, and what he accomplished with his numbers that he generated, with the way that he played the game, I... I I'd love to know how that human being dropped into today's NFL would perform because the rules were not nearly as slanted in favor of offense and quarterback play as they were. And he stood out at a time when the game wasn't suited to passing and the game wasn't as visible as it is now. We couldn't see highlights of every Johnny Unitas game instantaneously. We couldn't watch his games if we were able to, to purchase Sunday ticket. He wasn't playing in prime time like we see the star players do nowadays. So um, look, Tom Brady has uh, more championships than I think any quarterback will ever have. But Mm -hmm. John Unitas thrived in an era where quarterbacks did not generate the kind of production that we now see. And, you know, unfortunately, most football fans today barely recognize the name and, and there is some footage out there you can find and you can read books about him. But but I, I've, I've just I've always been and, and he he had his heyday before I was even an ardent NFL fan because I discovered it in the early 70s. But he's always been a guy that you know, when you grew up, then it was just this mystical figure who kind of hovered over the game. And uh, it's it's a shame that today's fans don't really appreciate how much he meant to what the game has become. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Mike Florio, author of Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, which is published by our friends at Public Affairs. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you. Thanks for your time. And uh, thanks for all your kind words about the book. Once again, I would like to thank Mike Florio for joining me. Copies of Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't, are available from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite 
local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.